We are uh, beginning Esther chapter 4, Esther chapter 4. So if you will turn over there and be prepared uh, for our study. <clears throat> I do want to quickly mention something uh, about our study last week. Uh, so, uh, as many of you heard, you know, David was about to make a comment and he said, no, I'll just take care of you when I get home. No, I didn't say it that way. <laughs> Not exactly. No, I'll wait till I get home. We get home. Uh, of course, David is staying with us right now and we have uh, many wonderful biblical conversations in which he corrects me all the time. And uh, he, he told me today maybe he should make an announcement about just remember he's young and inexperienced, give him a chance uh, to, to realize this. But anyway, we have a lot of fun together. We are very fortunate to have David. I'm very fortunate to have David. And uh, so anyway, when we got home, he, I said, so okay, lay it on me. What's wrong with my, with my uh, position on this and where I've come in this? And he says, just doesn't pass the smell test. I said, what does that mean? He says, it stinks. You know, he doesn't pass the smell test. <laughs> and so I said, all right, you lay it on me. He says, I got to work it out of my mind. So in the morning, he must have stayed up all night long to figure it out. In the morning, he gets up and he goes, all right, here's your problem. You're, you're making a comparison between the concubines under the law of Moses and what the king of Persia did, and that's not fair. That's not a fair comparison. I said, ding, you're exactly right. Yeah, after an hour of arguing with him, of course. But, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but I think that is true. Uh, King Ahasuerus is a bum, you know, <laughs> I mean, just gathering women all over the place of the empire anytime he wants, and all of this is, uh, is not what God had in mind, the law of Moses. My point last week was this, we have to empathize with where Esther, Esther's condition, she, she, she has, a, she just has a very simple choice, just die or come and be the queen or one of his harem. So that was what I was trying to point out, really. Uh, the other kind of went off the tracks. But I wanted, wanted, you, wanted you to see that, that it's easy to just cast stones at Esther and go, ah, oh, you know. Uh, but there are times in life where we get caught in a raging river, so to speak. Uh, and, and it's like, where am I going to go with this? How am I going to handle this? Not sure. And things are pounding on you, hitting you so quickly that you oftentimes may not make the best of decisions or you get caught in a situation where you just have to make the best of it. That's what I wanted you to see, and it didn't come out right. <laughs> anyway, I'm appreciative of David on that. I wish we could stop and talk about that more, but we really don't have time to because there's so much to cover in chapter 4. It is a huge chapter, center point of the book, and we will, we will uh, need to spend plenty of time uh, on that. So <clears throat> let's, let's begin with a few things here. Uh, let's just simply uh, read, uh, first off, just read down. Uh, uh, through, let's see, uh, verse, t uh, verse, uh, verse n 9 here. Okay, so when Mordecai learned all that had been done, of course, this, the, the decree has gone out to kill all the Jews. That's, what's ha that's basically what's happened. So Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, everywhere, the king's command and his decree
decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, or Hathak, whatever his name is, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn that what this was and why it was. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of of, uh, of her people. And then, and Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Okay, uh, so uh, first, first thought we need, to, we need to get in mind, we'll just hit some highlights here very quickly as we've talked about a lot about the bigger story. But uh, all the city is in an uproar and, and it seems that no one in the palace knows about it. <laughs> knows why. Isn't that interesting? Does the king know? He doesn't even know. The king doesn't even know that he just decreed that all the Jews in the, in the whole empire are going to be murdered. So it's like everybody in the empire knows. It shows you how, again, I mentioned this briefly last week, how insulated rulers can become, including this country. <laughs> they can become very, very insulated to what? It's going on with the common people, and that is exactly what Xerxes is in that position. He doesn't even know what's going on. He's sitting there just in his palace, insulated from everybody else, and all of this is going down. So it's the first thing that, that seems to just strike us, that the empire's in turmoil, the city is in turmoil, and Ahasuerus doesn't even know anything about it. And the queen doesn't know anything about it. And people in the palace may not even know anything about it. So it's, it's quite a, an, an interesting situation. Skip down to verse 11 for a second. Uh, of course, we, we've talked about this part of the, the story up to this uh, quite a bit. You know, here's the message going out and uh, Esther wants to know why and what's going on. And so then in verse 11, uh, all the king's servants... And the people of the king's uh, provinces know. Here is what Esther, of course, sends to tell Mordecai. All the king's servants all the, and, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Okay, um, let's, let's start with this. Uh, how long has Esther been married to Ahasuerus? Five years. Five years, good. Five years of marriage... And she hasn't been called into the palace for the last, or into his inner chamber to see him even. She hasn't seen him for 30 days, a whole month. Conclusions. What would you think about that? About the, 
how the king is thinking about her and their relationship and all of this, what would you conclude from some of this? I wouldn't call it a normal marriage. <laughs> yeah, good, good. First and foremost, uh, regardless of what's going on, he doesn't even seem to appreciate much his queen, does he? I mean, 30 days, are you kidding me? That's a, you know, that's a long time. <laughs> well, I, I would say, I mean, we, we saw with Vashti that he considered the queen ornamental as much as anything else. In some and way. then when he chose a queen, every, every single requirement that was mentioned was related to her beauty and her right. presence not anything else. Yeah. And so when he needs ornamental uh, <laughs> things, she comes. She when comes. He doesn't. Yeah. He's not around. Yeah. It's, that's her purpose. That's good. That's her purpose. <laughs> I like it. And in fact, uh, uh, you can just imagine how Esther may see her purpose like that. I'm here. I get pampered. I eat. Whatever. If he calls, I come. She might view that as an upgrade. <laughs> you might see that as an upgrade. That's right. That's right. Chip. In the meantime, how many women maybe he's brought into his chambers during this time with this harem? And as we've read historically, it wasn't uncommon for the for these kings just to gather another group of women when they desired. And so it, there doesn't seem to be an, an unusually special relationship that's going on, 30 days. Now, look at this from Esther's point of view. She connects this with the fact that's what I got up here. So five years of marriage, not called in for 30 days, and, and this death penalty for going to the king uninvited. Now, do you think Esther, do you think Esther is um, kind of exaggerating the danger here or not? Or do you think the danger is very, very real? <laughs> okay, so when you look historically back in the earlier chapters, we have discovered it's pretty dangerous to be in the Persian court. court. The king is, a, in many ways, just goes by his whims. You might catch him at a bad moment <laughs> when you walk in there, and he might just go, you know, I haven't seen this woman in 30 days anyway. Who cares? Get her out. Take her away, you know. It, it, all of these things suggest that I think that Esther is serious about this. At the very least, we would say that Esther herself, we're not going to doubt her, Esther herself believed that this was a very dangerous situation. And if she went before the king under these circumstances, that she could, she could easily uh, just, just be killed right on the, right on the moment. Uh, the uh, uh, the idea of what Xerxes is going through really, really is amazing. Now, Herodotus, which I've mentioned before, a historian that writes about this period, he says that Persian kings only had seven friends, and he put that in quotation marks, 
seven friends that they chose that were allowed to see the king's face unannounced or without an invitation. Haman, of course, was obviously one of these. Remember, Haman just showed up uh, the morning that uh, he was trying to get uh, Mordecai killed. Now, there was an option. Uh, an audience could be requested of the king by sending a eunuch messenger to the king and asking if you could see him. Now, why would you think Esther didn't uh, choose that route? The last time a eunuch said the queen <laughs> comes, <laughs> the queen got fired. <laughs> okay, this, this messenger, that's a good observation. This messenger eunuch thing didn't work out so good with, you, with Vashti. That's, that's very true. The eunuchs would know what decree Haman had made. And they would know, the king wouldn't know, but they might tip Esther's hand. No, that's, that's, that's possible too. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Uh, Dave? Well, she hadn't seen him for 30 days. It seems likely that a eunuch messenger would just get blown off. Yeah. Maybe if she if she tries to go face to face, right? If he is if he's going to kill her, like that's going to happen. But her coming to him personally indicates to him that there's a degree of seriousness here that I think hopefully gets attention. Good, and I, I think I think he hit that very very well there. That the fact that he hasn't called her for thirty days, and just some eunuch messenger walking in and said the queen would like to see you, it's like. When I get a chance, whatever, you know, uh, may not have taken any of it seriously. But what a difference if she steps in in all of her beauty <laughs> and, uh, and just uh, stands there, maybe reminds him mentally of what he has been uh, losing out on <laughs> for these 30 days and whatever. Maybe he has some mercy. And so, uh, so good. You do have that ad advantage. So she, she skips the idea of just sending and trying to get an audience with the king. And, uh, and so it, it, is, uh, it is easy then to see that, uh, that that might not have worked, but going before the king then, uh, I think we need to conclude, was truly very, very dangerous. And she realized that this, this could, could very well end badly. And so she presents that then to Mordecai. Okay, any other thoughts just on up, to, up through verse 11 now? <clears throat> or questions? Okay. So now notice in verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and verse 13 and 14 are just really a great classic statement uh, about uh, what uh, Mordecai does. This is center part of the book. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All right, let's start with that, that first statement here uh, where he, he, he says, uh, do not think to yourself the king's, uh, in, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So in other words, don't think that this palace thing, that you're in this palace is somehow going to save you from the king, the, the decree. 
why do you think that's true? Why, why would Mordecai believe that? Okay. Because he really thought this threat was a grave threat to the Jewish nation. Okay. And how are they going? See, nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. So why does Mordecai think that somehow she's not going to escape? The king may not be able to save her because of his decree. Ah, okay. So first and foremost, we don't we need to remember the law of the Medes and Persians. Right? The law of Medes and Persians is there's no exception, not even for the king. And so what could happen? How could uh, the word get out that Esther is actually a Jew? Well, they're going to know, especially the ones that communicated Mordecai, that they're related. And there, there are going to be other women who want to be queen too. <laughs> yeah. Turn, him, turn her over and somebody would rise up and... Things leak, don't they? Especially under pressure. And you can imagine that as this day draws near to kill all the Jews, you do have enemies of the Jews throughout the kingdom. I mean, after all, there were quite, there were 75,000 that were eventually uh, killed uh, who were considered enemies of, of the Jews. So up to this particular period of time, we don't get any sense that um, Jews were, there was a lot of anti-Semitism going on, but, I mean, especially because Mordecai is a Jew and he's in the king's um, uh, labor force, so, so to speak, he's out at the gate, all of that. Nobody seems to think much about it until this Haman situation arises. So when the decree goes out, and you have all these enemies. I would imagine Jews are being outed like crazy. You know, the, they're, the enemies are going to be, it's just like Nazi, I think of it like Nazi Germany, where uh, if you're a Jew, you're, they're going to figure out that you're a Jew. Somehow they're going to find it out. And Esther has connections with Mordecai, and there are certain people who know that. And, uh, and so uh, this could easily leak. And once it leaked, then there wouldn't be anything the king could do to stop uh, her from being killed as well. I, I don't think Esther thought of that, maybe, <laughs> because of how, uh, how she had replied. It maybe hadn't come to her mind that this isn't necessarily going to protect you. Okay? And, and the way we talked about, because of the law of the Medes and Persians, Esther wouldn't be saved by the king either. Now, here's where you could, might summarize this. This is the way Esther now would maybe look at this. Esther's life might be in jeopardy if she goes before the king uninvited. But her doom is certain <laughs> if she does not go. So you weigh that together, and Esther's got to go, huh, good point, Mordecai. <laughs> uh, if, if I go before the king, I've got a chance. If I don't go before the king, I probably don't have a chance. So let me 
that would be the better choice than uh, between the between the two, and and that would be uh, the thing that uh, uh, would would urge her then to make the proper decision. All right, th that brings us then to uh, looking at verse thirteen, verse fourteen, when uh, when he says, "If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place." Now, you think that's kind of odd for Mordecai to say that? I mean, when you know all the secular ways that it seems that they're thinking up to this time, not a word about worship or religion or anything, and then all of a sudden he says, if you don't, deliverance is going to happen some way. It's either you or someplace else. Two things I think of, first of all, what follows in this is the basis of why he would say this, because he believes in the providence of God. But I think this really reminds me of Abraham, when Abraham was asked to offer Isaac, and Hebrews spells, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews spells that out for us in the 11th chapter, when he says that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, um, considering that if he had to, God would raise him from the dead because he was the son of promise. Had Abraham ever seen a resurrection? <coughs> But he had faith and confidence in God's promise. And this is the kind of confidence that Mordecai had. Yeah. He'd never seen it, and then everything right. around him said this is impossible. Yeah. And yet he believed it. I, I, think you, I think you make a great point. Uh, I, 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 I have looked at it when I, when I see this. I think, you say you think of Abraham, I think of Joseph. And all the events that took place, and Joseph being sold by his brothers. I mean, how do you make sense of that? <laughs> the father, his father, not coming to hunt for him and look for him. How do you make sense of that? He was so frustrated that his father didn't come that his firstborn son was, was, was named, I forget my father's house. <laughs> Fooey on him, you know, I'm done with him. <laughs> All that. So, I mean, the confusion that he's going. Then, of all things, for doing the right thing, what's he? Yeah, he gets thrown into prison. Now, how much worse can it get? And and just about the time he thinks he has an opening to get out, the crazy butler forgets to <laughs> say anything about it, and he's two more years in there. Hopelessness. And it's not until his own brothers show up that second time and he hears them talking and repentantly just in horrible condition. And he goes, God did this to save our people. And I think that's very similar with Mordecai. Mordecai sees all of this. And, you, you know, you just think about it. You, all of a sudden you step back from the weeds that you've been in all this time. And you say, an orphan girl Jewish orphan girl became the queen of Persia? Outrageously incredible. And not only that, if you're Esther, how has that changed your view of, the, of your position in the palace? Before this happens, you're like Adam said, you're just an ornament that gets called upon from time to time. Now all of a sudden, does everything start making sense? <sighs> oh, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. I'll just augment what I said. I was focusing on that first sentence that you had up there, that it would come from another place. Yeah. In other words, he's saying, you don't do this. God has a way. It won't be through you. But I think everything else you just said about Joseph aligns with what he says next. That's right. And there's, he would, I, I would think of Mordecai suddenly remembering the covenantal promises of God toward the Israel nation. And even though we have been bad, and even though we're in captivity, he realizes God is going to save this nation. Uh, Mara. It doesn't seem like Mordecai's behavior is to assume that he thought of that. I don't know. I could, I could think of him thinking all the times that Jews were near extinction. And somehow, some way, they remained... Um, Plentiful again. Um, he could maybe just remembering their history, sure. let alone well, he doesn't believe in God. Yeah. Well, I, I think he. I, I don't think we would go so far as to say Mordecai didn't believe in God, but he might have become more a secular Jew. Certainly, as Esther apparently had become somewhat of a secular Jew. Not that they don't have a background, not that they don't think God exists, but they certainly have not lived <laughs> like a a true uh, Jew in, in, dur- during this period of time. So, when when you when you look at this, I'm thinking I think in terms of uh, let's see, did I write it up here? Yeah, I think in terms of this. How many times have we seen, it just so happened. (laughs) It just so happened. Over and over again, it just so happened. And I think Mordecai could have easily went, oh, this is beginning to add up. (laughs) This is beginning to add up. Uh, There has been a purpose in this the whole time. Okay? So, so pretty cool to see, uh, to see exactly how he might have reasoned this, which would have come out then <clears throat> in this uh, explanation that he gives and this challenge that he gives uh, to Esther. Uh, by the way, what does he, what does Mort- what Mordecai didn't say? So when you look at the statement there, uh, who knows, but you have come to your royal position such a time as this. What, what didn't he say? that it might be interesting. You catch it? Could it be that he didn't say your own hope? He didn't okay. He, he didn't say that, though that sounds... He, he, he kind of said that. <laughs> he didn't say you came to your revolution before such a time as this. That's right. He didn't say, it's obvious. He said, who knows? Make an application. Finding moments. We'll talk about that in a second. That's right. Um, We've talked about this before, uh, briefly, when we were doing the overview. But, you know, people today a lot of times say, you know, I'm trying to figure out God's purpose in my life. I'm looking for him to lead me this way or that way or whatever. Okay, you're not going to read about that in the scriptures. What you're going to read about is defining moments. You're going to read about opportunities that pop up. And you need to ask yourself, hmm, 
Who knows whether I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, today I, I met uh, Louis at a Panera over near St. Thomas. He had an appointment over there and afterwards we met and had a Bible study together. And we were planning on, because he has to go over there on a weekly basis, we were planning on every Wednesday morning around 10 o'clock getting together and he wanted me to help him in teaching others. That's great. So I'm about 10 minutes into talking and I all of a sudden at the corner of my eye see a young man about 24 years old or so sitting about five, six feet from us. And I look over and he's just, just intently listening. You know, I'm, I'm always really quiet, as you can tell. And uh, <laughs> a half of Panera was probably hearing what I was teaching. So he looks at me and he smiled and I said, hi, how are you? And he goes, doing great. He says, this is interesting. I said, well, come on over. And he said, okay. And he gathered his stuff and he came over and we studied for another hour. And I asked him if he would like to study join us in the study each week at 10 o'clock. He said, I would love to. I got his number, whole thing. I'll alert you if something happens, we're not going to be here, blah, blah, blah. I, when I got in the car and drove off, I thought, Louis and I had planned on meeting at an entirely different restaurant. And at the last minute, he said, by the way, there's a Panera right here that I didn't know about where I have the appointment. Why don't you come here instead? <laughs> and I thought, who knows? whether God had brought me to the kingdom for such a time as this in that particular moment. So there's just, there's opportunities. And God places those opportunities. I look at that and uh, those are the kinds of situations I used to call God's contacts. I didn't do a thing to get it. <laughs> God just did it. And, uh, and it, it, it's, it, it's beautiful. It's moving. And uh, uh, we need to always be aware of that. Now, um, back in the day before I met Bernice, I'd have been too shy to ask him that question. <laughs> back when I was 22 years old or so. But I've learned from that time. Look for your opportunities. Open your eyes. As Jesus said, lift up your eyes. The fields are white to harvest. Open your eyes. So there are, that's one of the things that I think we should learn from that. This is a great statement by Mordecai that we should learn. Will you say that, Michael? Yeah. I was going to say, what does that say about our silence when we don't take advantage yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we need to always remember who we are and why we're here and uh, that these moments have come. Uh, just the fact that Paul repeatedly uh, urges others and himself prays for open doors. What is, what's an open door? It's an opportunity. You pray for an opportunity. Well, why am I praying for this opportunity? Exactly those things right there. And I had prayed for those, uh, that particular, uh, those types of opportunities. I do most of the days that I pray. That I'm, I'm just, I'm asking for those opportunities. And voila, there it is. And you know how, what I concluded? God had nothing to do with that. It was just pretend. No, I don't conclude that. Obviously. God promised he would open those doors. And he promised if I'd ask. So ask. It's just a cool thing. So beautiful, beautiful moment here uh, at, at this point. And, and so, as I've mentioned, I, I think Mordecai may have been remembering finally God's covenant in this, uh, etc. Okay, so look at verses 15 and 16 now, and I want you to notice... Um, 
how Esther then replies to this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All right. What's the big change here? What's the change you see in Esther? She's ordering <laughs> First off, we've never seen her command Mordecai to do anything. All of a sudden, it is not Mordecai giving the command. Esther immediately jumps in and takes control. And she tells Mordecai what to do. And for the rest of the book, she will tell Mordecai what to do. She suddenly steps in. What are you seeing? What, what would you conclude about Esther now? I mean, just think about her personality previously. And now all of a sudden, this particular change. What's happening inside of her? Go ahead, Rachel. I think there's a, there's a confidence that comes with accepting, like, I might die. <laughs> it might be over for me. So at that point, it's like, you know what? We're just going to take control of the situation because this is kind of all I have left. So That's right. why not? Okay, yeah. So one thing is, is she's realizing the urgency of this. She's realizing that... You know, she might as well step up, even if it is a little maybe under duress, but she suddenly accepts the responsibility. And she steps up. Any other ideas on how she is thinking here? Yeah. The way that the verse says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, I think she secured it in her thoughts. Whatever's okay. coming is coming, so I'm going to need it now. Good, good. She doesn't, you know, she has just been a little wallflower up to this particular point. Whatever happened, she just went along with it. That was the way it was. And all of a sudden, she sees purpose. She sees and accepts what Mordecai said, that you may have come to your royal position exactly for this moment. And she finally goes... You know, here's the way I would think. <laughs> we, we guess a little on this, but here's the way I would think. I've been hanging out in this palace for five years. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Am I really, this is my life? Can you not get really bored under those circumstances? Do I have any purpose in life? I am just stuck here to be called by this creep of a guy, <laughs> and she probably didn't think of him that way, but I'm just stuck here to be called by the, and that, that's all my only purpose, and suddenly Mordecai goes, now you know why you're here. Now you know your purpose, and she goes, Whew. all right, let's go, and suddenly she takes control and never looks back. The inner strength of Esther that she couldn't find before, that she didn't know how to grab, suddenly comes to her and she begins to really know 
why her, what her purpose is and what she has to do. And uh, no more just enjoying the luxury of the palace. No more hiding out. None of these things. And, uh, and so she now steps forward in this. So Esther's call for a fast. So I suggested something here on the screen. She's the only person in the book that has two names. She's Esther, Persian name. She's Hadassah, Jewish name. Who is she now? Who has she just embraced? She's embraced herself as, yes, Esther the queen of Persia, Persia but also Hadassah, a Jew woman who is a queen. And she is going to embrace her identity, something she's avoided all through the book at this time. And now she's going to be Hadassah. And she's going to step up and actually do something about what is going on. Now, tell me what uh, is going on here. Hold a fast on my behalf. You make sense of that one? Hold a fast on my behalf. If, you were, if she had said, pray on my behalf, what, we, what kind of prayer would you call that? A prayer for mercy and grace. Okay, it's an intercessory prayer. Sure, it's for mercy and grace, but it's an intercessory prayer. She's praying, she, she would be praying, please you pray and intercede for me. Instead, since that's not going to be what the author reveals, she is actually saying, hold a fast on my behalf. Well, as I put up here, who's the object of the fast then? There's the implication of the unseen God again, isn't there? Suddenly you're going, wow, hold a fast on my behalf, man, my behalf before who? <laughs> before God. And even though not mentioned, not said, it is the screaming uh, implication of what she's asking here. Uh, she, she, she sees then the, the real, real uh, need that she has for intervention at this particular point. Okay? Danny, you said something? No? I was just sitting here thinking that sometimes when you're studying with somebody, and you see that they get it. Yeah. They realize what you're talking about. Yeah. They realize how it fits together. Yeah. And that's kind of a defining moment. It is. Whether they want to accept that or whether they want to continue to trail with it. Absolutely. And Esther made the right challenge. Yeah. She accepts the challenge. She does. And you, you can just imagine, you can look at it this way. Esther's basically in the dark has this queen up to this point as to who she is and what she ought to be. She's not embracing her, her Judaism. She's not anything. She's just blind to who she is. And all of a sudden, the sun shines. The light comes. And she realizes it's time to step up. And that's what she does. A uh, commentator named Riken says this, Initially, a beautiful young woman with a weak character becomes transformed into a person with heroic moral stature and political skill. So uh, truly uh, seeing then the purpose of, of her uh, being uh, the queen of Persia. Now, applications. 
Okay, we've, we've made some of these uh, applications to our life from what we see Esther doing here, how she accepts the responsibility. moment happen a month after she became queen. <laughs> Wouldn't been ready for it. He, he uses that time. There are a lot of uh, defining moments in our life. Here's some of the things that Jesus said that ought to come to our minds. He, when he said to the apostles in John 4, lift up your eyes for the fields are white to harvest. Uh, how dull we become when we think that we are here just to sit in the luxury of our palace going from day to day until our life is no more and we are with God. That's not what he's called us to be. Uh, Romans says, Romans 13, 11, besides this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. These are, these are strong moments. I tell you what it makes me think of. It makes me think of a woman named Bernice that one day said, I need you to come out here and continue to help me teach. Of all, oh, there's too many people to teach. I can't do it all. You need to come out here. And I said, well, Bernice, I haven't finished my schooling yet. And as I've told a lot of you, she looked at me and cocked her head and went, I don't think you heard what I said. I need you out here to help me teach. I said, well, I'm only 20 units. Okay. <laughs> Defining moment, go. I was just going to say that whatever excuse Esther could have had would have indicted her. It doesn't matter what she would have said. Haven't seen the king in a year or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You're there for that moment. You're there for that So you either take it or you don't take it. And it makes me think about all the excuses each of us have had with talking to our neighbor or whatever. Like, yeah. too busy and too tired. Yeah. Or too scared. Not the perfect time. time. Yeah. <laughs> um, every excuse indicts us. That's right. Great. Great point, Mark. We won't do heroic acts if we do not see dire need. If we see the dire need and other people won't live boldly enough. Yes. That's, that's a very, very good point. I think a lot of our neglect comes from us not appreciating the dire need. That was one of the things my friend Bernice did a lot for me. She deeply felt the need of those who did not have Christ. It was majorly important to her all of her life. And uh, when you have that uh, 
that knowledge that this person is going to be lost if I don't say something. Who knows whether I've come to this time. And uh, very, very important. So there's some other things we're going to talk about this. Uh, and uh, I appreciate your comments. We'll, uh, we'll look to do that, Lord willing, next week. Thank you.